0: Hi, it's Chris. Two items before we begin. First, don't forget to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It delivers backstories, show notes, extra questions with guests and more. This week's bonus question for political strategist Scott Jennings, is Bob Corker right? Are Republican senators afraid of Trump? You'll want to see his answer. You can sign up at chrisreback.com. Next, if you like the podcast and the newsletter, how about becoming a member of Chris Reback's Conversations? Conversation members get exclusive early access to select podcasts before a wide release, like my recent live podcast event. You also get invitations to submit questions for upcoming podcast guests. Other benefits will be added in the future, and we offer two tiers of membership: patron and superstar. Choose the one that's right for you at chrisreback.com slash membership. Thanks and now let's get to the podcast. I'm Chris Freeback. This is Political Wire Conversations. For many on the right and the left, a big question has been, what's happening to the GOP? Free trade? Gone. Budget deficits? No problem. Free movement of labor? Not so much. Military war exercises? Who needs them? Russia as an outlaw state? How about Russia in the G8? I think a more fair and probably more relevant question, what is the GOP? And frankly, the question comes more from the right than the left. Bob Corker basically asked it this week on the Senate floor. Conservative writers ask it in columns and tweets. GOP voters ask it, particularly as they primary established conservatives like South Carolina's Mark Sanford and perhaps Alabama's Martha Roby. Today, I'll ask it. Scott Jennings is a political strategist and co founder of Run Switch Public Relations in Kentucky. You've seen him on CNN, where he is resolutely polite and Republican. Among many roles, he served as special assistant to President George W. Bush and Deputy White House political director. He worked for Mitt Romney in 2012 and Jeb Bush in the last election. He also has worked on numerous campaigns for his home state senator, Mitch McConnell. Just this spring, Scott was a fellow at Harvard's Institute of Politics. Before we begin, though, I want to remind you about our show's terrific sponsor, The Cook Political Report. People who want to stay ahead of the curve turn to The Cook Political Report, and with good reason. For 30 years, the report has nailed the nation's most important election outcomes and political trends. People who make it their business to know politics make it their business to subscribe to The Cook Political Report. Just go to cookpolitical.com to sign up. That's cookpolitical.com. Okay, that's it. Here's my conversation with Scott Jennings. Scott, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time.
1: Yeah, thanks for having me. It's an honor to be here.
0: So I have a lot to uh, ask you about, including to to what extent you recognize the Republican Party today and Mitch McConnell's becoming the longest serving Republican Senate leader in American history. But I got to say, after reading your Twitter feed, I just thought I should bring to your attention... I think, Scott, you're doing this whole TV thing wrong. Can I just read you some of what I found on your Twitter feed? Yeah, please. Uh, please is,
1: read mean tweets.
0: <laughs> no, no, that's the point. It's the opposite. So, so from uh, at Joseph Canavan, uh, disagree with a lot with you a lot of the time, Scott, but you make your point articulately and with respect to your fellow panelists. You are a pleasant outlier. Kimberly Grand. Thank you for respectfully sharing your view on CNN. It's so important to get all sides of the story so viewers can make informed decisions. We don't need more echo chambers. From N. Wangle, you are unfailingly courteous, which is something sadly lacking in political conversation today. I appreciate it. Now, Scott, you know, you know, that's not the point of cable TV political talk, right?
1: You know, I, uh, <laughs> I I see some of these cable panels and, and I started doing CNN about a year ago and I started doing some other networks uh, a few months before that, but I signed exclusively with CNN about a year ago. But I don't really like it when the panels devolve into people talking over each other, uh, you know, kind of sniping at each other. I just I don't think it really adds to the debate. I actually think most of the issues that are brought up in these cable shows are very important, whether it's the Russia investigation, taxes, you know, North Korea, whatever we're talking about is really important. And there are a number of good arguments to be made. But I don't think anybody can really understand or hear what the arguments are uh, when these things devolve into uh, interruption festivals. So I will not I won't engage in it. I don't like it. I don't want to be interrupted. And I certainly don't want to interrupt anybody else. And uh, I sort of uh, uh, try to live by the golden rule on cable, which is do unto other panelists as you'd have them do unto you. <laughs> and
0: that's what I do. <laughs> you know, it's funny. I've, I've read, you know, a lot of the commandments, and it, that wasn't exactly how I saw it written or remember it <laughs> written. But, you know, I'm not going to interrupt you or disagree with you on that point. I'm sure that that's uh, that, that, that's what was written. So um, a, a lot to cover. And and among the reasons why I really wanted to talk with you um, is because you you are on there. You're You're on, you know— a lot i don't know if every day but you know certainly you know very frequently and you are you're in the role and you are representing to a great extent the gop and a lot of folks and and not just people on the left a lot of folks on the right a lot of republicans are trying to understand what is the gop today and and so that you know, I'm hoping you can help a little bit about uh, with that. So let me read through some of you know some of and I know you know what I'm talking about. You know the questions that that are out sure. there. Yeah. Um, so so Bill Kristol today tweeted: Corey Stewart wins Virginia. Steve King retweets a neo-Nazi. Paul Ryan undercuts a DACA solution. Mitch McConnell won't defend free trade. Donald Trump trumpets a North Korea policy of amoral weakness. It's worth fighting for the GOP, but now it's getting worse, not better. The other day, Bill Maher asked uh, Brett Stevens, or said to him, uh, you're a member of a party that no longer exists, to which Stevens replied, that's right. Well, in theory, it exists for me, and then later... Stevens, and I'm paraphrasing here, I'm not quoting, said something about his being a conservative but not part of this Republican Party. You saw, and I've, I see you've, uh, I think I saw you commented briefly on, you know, you saw Bob Corker on the Senate floor. You've got Anna Navarra on CNN. Linda Chavez said some similar things the other day. He, anyhow, you know my point. A lot of Republicans, lifelong Republicans, say they don't recognize the party. Do you?
1: Sure, I do. And, I, you know, I think there's there are a lot of people out there who disagree with Donald Trump on style and on communications tactics. But if you look at the policy, it's virtually all the same Republican stuff we've been fighting for for years. Tax cuts, conservative judges drilling in Anwar, a stronger national defense, a more robust uh, you know, national security apparatus that's uh, a little bit more muscular on the world stage I mean, this is what the Republican Party has always been about, at least for the last 20 years as I've been part of it. Now, we have had some policy departures on uh, trade, but we had those kinds of departures under George W. Bush. I, I mean, I remember that he imposed tariffs back in his first term, and uh, and I don't personally agree with the strategy of tariffs. I think tariffs are taxes, and when taxes are going up, human productivity is going down. But I don't think one policy disagreement inside of a party makes that entire party Unrecognizable. I think this largely uh, goes down along the lines of style and communications tactics. The president has a different style. He does employ different communications tactics. And there are a whole heck of a lot of people out there who absolutely thought he would never get elected. And they made an industry out of taking pot shots at him during the election. And once he did get elected, they had two choices keep going down that road uh, or try to make up with him. Some folks have tried to make up with him, but some people haven't let it go. The reality is, is that 90 percent of Republicans out there support what the president is doing. And that's because I think they believe, by and large, he's getting the things done that the Republicans in Washington have been promising to do for a long time. So, yeah, I think you're always going to have policy fights inside of a party. But basically, these are the same things we've been fighting for for years. And you know what? That includes immigration. I know that there's a lot of rancor around the immigration issue. But I remember back in the summer of 2007 when I was working for George W. Bush, and I think only like 12 Republican senators supported the Bush plan for comprehensive immigration reform at that time. There's always been uh, a bit of a a rankle on immigration in the party that tilts toward where Trump is versus uh, where other people say they are uh, in the business community. That's always existed, it's not new to Trump. So, yeah, I recognize the party. Trump's a different kind of cat, uh, but you cannot deny. I mean, Mitch McConnell says it all the time. This has been the most uh, productive year and a half for center-right governance since he went to the Senate in 1985, and I tend to agree.
0: Do you think – so for those conservatives, I mean what they would argue is um, that the traditional conservative republicanism, free trade, budget deficits, uh, free movement of labor – um, you know you you raise the the military point, but now you know we 're backing off and I understand this may be wrapped into the uh north whole North Korea discussion, but backing off of the military war exercises and and again that 's that 's a a bit of a different point because i you know that 's that 's being talked about by trump um as part of the whole north korea um uh discussion more than just you know backing away from uh anything militarily um, so do you feel you really kind of feel like the, these conservative Republicans and people who really want to identify as Republicans, that it's because they find the, the personal style of Trump. So, you know, I guess my, my word, not theirs, offensive.
1: Yeah, no, they they find his style offensive. They find his personal life offensive. I mean, I've been on cable panels. Uh, where uh, some of my fellow uh, supposed Republican panelists have challenged me to try to defend his personal behavior. I'm not going to do it. I don't I don't necessarily agree uh, with all of his uh, personal behavior, but that doesn't make me want to have uh, conservative judges any less. It doesn't make me want to have lower taxes any less, uh, and I don't think there's a politician alive who I agree with 100 percent of the time Either on policy or on personality or on personal life choices. I don't think there's another human alive <laughs> that I can tell you I track 100% of the time. So I, I, I think that I think we have to to accept what has happened here uh, and call 90% of a loaf a win. And that is, we elected a Republican president who has largely adhered to the party's values on most issues, who has changed and taken the party in a different direction on a few issues but overall has delivered on the promise. Smaller government, we've had deregulation, lower taxes. The tax reform bill was a huge win. Swing the judiciary back from the left turn it made under Obama, that's absolutely happened. These are the big ticket issues that Republicans think are vital to the future of the country and to quibble with what the president's behavior was at a golf tournament in 2006 compared to these. I mean, we're gonna be talking about the Trump McConnell court for three decades. And you all are worried about his dalliances at a at a golf tournament. No six, I find it distasteful, but it certainly doesn't take away my <laughs> desire for a conservative court. I think that's ludicrous, frankly.
0: But but as you point out, they also talk about free trade. They also talk about the budget deficit, and they all, they, they they talk. It's even on policy issues. I, I take your point. I mean, the, the judgeship you, you can't argue with. Um, the tax cut we can argue. You know whether it was you know the 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 policy behind it and but I understand that there are uh plenty of uh, Republicans and plenty of conservatives who feel like that was good brought taxes they you know they brought taxes down and there are you know we're not it's not a tax policy discussion on whether that went too much to the corporate side or where did it go um but but I guess as I've been looking at what they've been writing and saying, I feel it It does feel like it feels like there's a real split. Do, do you want them back? Do you want those the, the, that part of the Republican wing back?
1: Yes, I, I think I want as many people as possible in the Republican Party. And it so happens right now that the Republican Party is being run by someone they don't personally like. But if you align yourself in politics only with the people that you personally like all the time, you're going to be pretty lonely. I mean, I meet people in politics all the time that I don't particularly like, but I think they're doing good things or make smart decisions or articulate points pretty well. So I think think that, yes, we need to have all these people involved in the party. Unfortunately, I think a lot of these people have decided they don't want to be in this party anymore. Well, I've got news for them. This party is going to be run by Donald Trump for at least the next three years. It may be run by Trump uh, you know, uh, for two full terms, and the brand of politics he has introduced to the country is not going away. I mean, you are going to see some of his policy views articulated by members of Congress, uh, candidates for lower offices for years to come. So I think people can either make peace with that uh, or not. And I would just say 90% of Republicans support what the president is doing. Again, that doesn't mean that they may support him 100 percent of the time on everything he does. But by and large, they think he delivered on his promises. They think he's acting in a conservative manner, and they think he has sort of recovered the country from the disaster that was Barack Obama's eight years. I think this is all a lot of personal differences in style and communications. Yes, there are some policy things that have rankled people. But Lord have mercy, can you deny that Donald Trump in a year and a half has essentially erased the Obama legacy on so many fronts? No, you cannot deny that. And that was a central motivating factor for a lot of Republicans in 2016.
0: So let me uh, ask you, let's turn to um, the primaries. Uh, There was a set of voting uh, just yesterday. And and two things. One thing that you said the other day, really strong analysis, I thought, which I I think also, you know, besides the fact that, uh, you know, you you seem to handle yourself in a highly polite manner in a forum that (laughs) that, that doesn't always reward that. um, there There were two points of analysis that you gave recently. One was in a column that you wrote today, I think it just posted today. And then um, the other night uh, with Erin uh, Burnett, you, you said um, – uh, I think the issue was tariffs that she was pointing out and, uh, and you know, she was rightfully, in my mind, stating to you really forcefully um, that this is not a mainstream conservative idea. And, and to that, you said it may not be mainstream in Washington, but I think the politics are a lot more confusing out in the middle of America – the president and the Republican Party are working better together than they have ever worked, and I, I, I that, listened to that. Listens to that, and I was I kind of thought to myself, you know, maybe that's the point. Maybe, maybe the point is that that's where the GOP voters are, and and this will segue into primary discussion. And you've written about Mark Sanford, but mm-hmm. but maybe that's where the Republican voters are, and the politi- and and Trump got elected. He's where the voters are the GOP voters in particular. And if that's where the voters are, then that defines the party. Is that is that part of your point?
1: Yes, that is part of my point. I think out in the middle of America and I've heard this for years. This isn't, by the way, new to Trump. I've heard this for years. There has been a longstanding viewpoint by Republican grassroots people that America is being taken advantage of, you know, whether it's in our trade deals, whether it's in some of our alliances, whether it's you know during the obama years when you know we draw red lines and don't enforce them you know there was just this sense that america was being disrespected and taken advantage of and some of that is viewed on trade i live in kentucky as you know i can tell you one of the most hated things in kentucky is nafta i've taken a lot of political surveys here in my work over the years nafta comes up to this day as being something that hurt kentucky now intellectually i actually think free trade with canada and mexico Uh, has helped Kentucky. In fact, I think Canada is Kentucky's largest trading partner. But the political view Mm. that somehow Kentucky and other uh, southern Midwestern states lost out in that deal certainly exists. Trump picked up on that and he ran on that and he won on that. And so, yeah, I think it's a mainstream view in Washington that tariffs are a terrible idea and, and the president should abandon this. But in the middle of the country, there are people who think, you know what, I at least want somebody looking into whether we are being treated fairly. My, ju- my uh, judgment is the president will ultimately pull back from this uh, and try to strike better deals, uh, even if they are only incrementally better. I don't think we're going to have these massive tariffs in the way that are being discussed today. Uh, But I do think what the voters are thinking he's doing is at least I'm going to look under the hood here. Instead of telling you we're being treated fairly, I'm going to make sure we're being treated fairly. That is a sentiment I have heard in the Republican Party for years. And so Trump caught up with that sentiment, and and he's riding that wave a little bit. I'd say one other thing on this topic. CNN took a poll in May in which they asked an interesting question, which is, do you trust President Trump? or do you trust congressional Republicans to handle most issues of the day? And among Republican respondents, 64% said they trusted Trump. 26% said they trusted congressional Republicans. The fact is the Republicans out there in the world believe Donald Trump is the head of the party and should be setting the agenda for the party. And they believe he's got the right ideas right now. So We can debate the merits of these ideas, but as a political matter, as a party matter, I know who's going to win these fights. It's going to be Donald Trump, which is why I've sort of been preaching party unity. The president's the leader of the party. He's setting the agenda, and I want to see congressional Republicans working with the president to get results. That's what they did on the tax bill. It's what they've done on judges and regulations. We were talking about Corker on TV the other night, and he's ranting and raving on the Senate floor about tariffs, which is his right, and I think a lot of people agree with him. He was trying to attach an amendment to a defense bill, and it would have killed the defense bill, and the president would veto his idea anyway. He's on his way out the door, so he's threatening to sort of disrupt party unity for the sake of making a point. That is absolutely not what Republican voters uh, want their congressional leaders to do. I think they want them to speak up uh, when they have different ideas, but they do not want to disrupt the party unity that is giving them results.
0: And that was the other bit of analysis that you gave recently that I wanted to to – ask you about it. It seemed very, very strong. It, it, it was in a uh, piece you posted on uh, CNN.com uh, today. Um, though I, I got to say, your, your lead, while well, well, well strong. Best lead
1: I've ever written. Best uh, uh, lead I've ever written. I've written a lot of columns and articles over the years, and by far, this one's going up on the wall. <laughs> <laughs>
0: okay. Well, it, it, was a, it was a touch rough. I, I mean, it, wasn't, it might not have been your gentlest lead, your, your best no. lead, not your gentlest.
1: Sometimes the truth, sometimes the truth cuts deeply, and yeah. uh, and it is true though.
0: <laughs> it, it is true. So for you know, for the one listener who hasn't seen your piece on CNN.com because they all you know follow everything that you write and say religiously, uh, your your lead was uh, Mark Sanford survived. Mark Sanford survived cheating on his wife, but he could not survive cheating on Donald Trump. I, I gotta say it's it's not a bad lead. I. I I would have written it the lead, is, to if I had thought of it. You know
1: what? It, it's true. Mark Stanford. I mean, people forget that in 2009, after all that fiasco, he never did resign as governor. And then in 2013, he got elected to Congress. And so he never actually suffered <laughs> any political consequences for hiking the Appalachian Trail. However, he did suffer consequences for straying from the Trump agenda. And I don't mean in rhetoric. If you read the piece, I make the point that it was his voting record. He was one of the five worst uh, Republicans in the House conference as it relates to voting the Trump agenda. And so, yeah, I think it's I think he had said some things about the president that were, uh, you know, he wasn't happy with him. But I to me, it was the voting record that caught up with him.
0: And as a clever fellow recently noted, there's not a lot of dignity on the Appalachian Trail.
1: <laughs> <laughs> there is not. There is not. No, that I, that I, was uh,
0: your tweet, of course.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the Sanford episode to me. Is really instructive. I compared it to a similar episode in Virginia where yeah. uh, Congressman Taylor had a primary. Same kind of deal. It was an outsider, a Trump loyalist running. This was in say, the Virginia,
0: Virginia 10th.
1: That that's right. And yeah. and it was the same message. This guy's not loyal to Trump. Now the different. And Taylor Taylor himself had said uh, he didn't think the you know he thought the president had made some mistakes. Should choose his words more carefully. So he he stylistically had some problems with Trump. But when it came time to vote. When the rubber hit the road, what did he do? He voted 99 percent of the time the Trump agenda. That guy wins 76 percent in his primary, an easy win. And so I think Republicans allow uh, for other Republicans to have disagreements with the president on style and tactics. But when the rubber hits the road, when it's time to vote, when it's time to pull everybody together and move the ball, they look very closely at who is moving the ball forward and who is, you know. Pulling it back and trying to pull a Lucy and Charlie Brown on the president. That's what they're looking for. So this this caught up with Sanford. And there are other Republicans in the conference who have a worse voting record than Sanford. There's four of them. And if I were them, I'd be looking over my shoulder because somebody's going to catch up with them in a primary before too long.
0: Are Republicans better at that than Democrats in terms of staying cohesive no matter what? You
1: know, good question. Uh, over the last several years, I would have said no. I mean, I actually think, you know, fracture in the Republican Party, especially in the House, has made governing extremely difficult. But I think one thing the Republicans have learned recently is that when you stick together, you can make things happen. And this is what the miracle of Mitch McConnell's leadership in the Senate has been. The guy's had 52, now 51 Republicans, and he's managed to somehow hold it together and keep it all patched up uh, to do things for the president. Ryan and uh, Boehner before him. You know, they faced fractured uh, conferences and they've had to keep it all patched together. Ryan, I think, has done a good job of largely holding it together long enough to put things forward for the president. Uh, I just think Republicans are looking at the world going, we were getting nothing under Obama. We stopped a lot of things, but we were getting nothing. Trump shows up. We have all this consternation. But when we finally started voting together and working together, the things we want started happening. So – They've learned politics is a team sport and Republicans right now are better at that, I think, than they have been over the last, you know, eight or 10 years.
0: Can we talk about uh, Senator McConnell now? Absolutely. And I I learned, I realize now in in doing some research to to prep for this conversation, I think I now realize why you always have something nice to say about him. You were a McConnell scholar at the University of Louisville. I mean, mean, how rude would that be for you to say anything (laughs) negative about him?
1: Let me tell you something about Mitch McConnell. Yeah. Uh, po- politics aside, he spent a good chunk of his time creating and raising money for the McConnell Center for Political Leadership at U of L, the University of Louisville, his alma mater and mine. And it chooses ten Kentucky high school kids a year. They get a full ride to the University of Louisville. And I was one of them. In in uh, 1996, I went to U of L. I'm the son of a garbage man from West Kentucky. I had nothing. You know, I, I had nothing and I end up with a full ride to one of the state's biggest universities because Mitch McConnell thought it was important to teach people to be engaged in public service and and like civic leadership. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I've been a fan of his for a long time. I've worked on his last several campaigns uh, and I think he's probably uh, the most consequential politician uh, of the last century uh, for Kentucky uh, and probably dating back to, you know, Abraham Lincoln, uh, you know, his his tenure. Allows Kentucky to punch above its weight. So I've had a personal relationship with him. I've worked for him in politics, and I don't have uh, I don't have much bad to say about Mitch McConnell.
0: No, I I know that you don't. I wouldn't imagine that you do, given uh, the story that you just told. And and in reading about the scholarship and and about the center, um, it, it does seem like a heck of a scholarship. And and yes, the full I mean a full ride for ten kids a year, um, yeah, is extraordinary. You know, and,
1: and it's all focused on. Uh, putting kids in touch with, uh, you know, world leaders. I mean, they've had presidents, Supreme Court justices, members of Congress, uh, people from you know, around the world come in to speak to these kids. I, I, when I was uh, special assistant to President Bush, we had the McConnell Scholars meet with George W. Bush, which was a big, a big moment for me personally. So the exposure they get is incredible. The it changes your life. I mean, they they uh, study abroad, uh, and for a lot of these kids, you know, they're coming from. You know, uh, backgrounds uh, in which they might not otherwise be able to afford or have that kind of experience, and so I think it's going to be one of McConnell's biggest legacies. His whole archive, the McConnell Elaine Chow archives, are also at the McConnell Center at U of L. It's a really neat thing if you're ever in Louisville and, and you're listening to this. I would encourage you to stop by. It's it's a pretty cool place to visit.
0: Yeah, I, I will. I will have to visit that myself. Um, yeah. Can can I ask you know the tough stuff on McConnell? Absolutely. Okay. So uh, uh, yesterday, he became the longest-serving Republican Senate leader in American history. You wrote a beautiful and I know heartfelt commemoration uh, in the Courier-Journal, and you compared him to one of the longest-lasting baseball pitchers, Phil Necro. We'll get to some yeah. of the hard stuff in a second, but this will this will relate. Now, I, I happen to be a big Phil Necro fan because I was a young boy in Atlanta uh, when he was on the Braves. But yep. as you note, Necro threw the greatest knuckleball, a shifty- <laughs> fluttering, tricky pitch that can't maintain a straight line. Did you mean to compare McConnell to a junk ball pitcher?
1: I don't consider a knuckleball a junk ball. I consider a knuckleball to be one of the hardest pitches to throw and to master it uh, truly is to master uh, a part of the craft that very few people ever do. And I think that's what McConnell has done in politics. He's mastered uh, longevity and leadership at a time when it's hard. I mean, there was a time in politics when being your party's leader Uh, meant you'd made it. You know, you got a free ride for the rest of your life. Now, when you become your party's leader, uh, all you earn is a target on your back. And for him, I think, to last this long in this era, particularly when you consider all the shifts we've had, you know, when he became leader, there was no Tea Party. No one was talking about populism. Donald Trump was still a Democrat. I mean, so much has changed in 11 years. Uh, And for him to sort of maintain leadership position and hold the party together through all of that, I think it's pretty remarkable. I think Phil Necro was one of the best pitchers of, uh, uh, baseball history, uh, for his longevity, uh, for what he did late in life, uh, you know, for his stick I mean, the guy was gritty and gutty. And I just, when I, when I was thinking about, you know, everybody's going to write about the nuts and bolts of this record, I wanted to think of something, uh, that I thought made sense to, you know, the average Joe out there. So Phil Necro seemed like the average Joe pitcher to me. And, and he had a lot of success,
0: yeah, his brother was the average Joe. He was the above average uh, phil I would say we, so sure there's one thing that you wrote that that struck me though um, you, you wrote while much has changed about our politics and culture in the last eleven years, McConnell is the same pitcher he always was, a fierce competitor whose only mission is to win and and it, it, I thought to myself, is that a good thing to be a great and thoughtful and inspiring leader? Should winning be the only thing? And I, I, I even looked – I looked at the McConnell scholars and I looked at the mission and outstanding leadership potential and committed to the principles of scholarship, leadership, and and service. And, and so maybe the line didn't come – maybe I read it more harshly – it may it might not even be the right word – than you meant it. But but that sense – but it it is a little bit of what the criticism is about McConnell, right? The, the, the obstruction of Obama, particularly the Merrick-Arland Garland. Uh, you know, thing that that it's just about winning. I think that would be the core, a core criticism of McConnell. Right. And, and so and, and you kind of set it in the piece a little bit. So h- how do you square all that? Well, I think that
1: McConnell as a party leader sees his job uh, as winning uh, for the Republican Party as much as possible. And that means both in campaigns, but also in policy. And you're not going to catch me boohooing too much for Obama in the judiciary. During Obama's eight years, he appointed 40 percent of the judiciary. I think Bush did about 33 percent. So Obama got, uh, in my opinion, more than his fair share. A lot of people criticize McConnell's actions on the judiciary vacancies, including uh, the Scalia seat. Uh, But I think Obama did a pretty good job of getting his appointees in, thanks in large part to Harry Reid changing the rules of the Senate. Uh, So I I think – his mission is to win. His mission is to win elections. His mission is to win on the policy fights of the day. And he always says, uh, losers go home, winners make policy. And if you're in politics and you don't care about winning for the principles and values that you hold dear, then why, why are you in politics if not to fight for the things that you really care about? I think McConnell sometimes is unfairly pillory to someone who doesn't really have you know that that many core values that is false he does have core values and he has taken a lot of heat over the years for engaging in political tactics that made those core values gave them the best chance to to rise up so his missions to win for the Republican Party that's why i think it's kind of crazy i've heard people over the years say you know at one time he was too conservative then the tea party came and he wasn't conservative enough and now he's you know he's not trump enough now he's too trump enabling I mean people try to assign labels to McConnell. All I know him as is a guy who is as committed to the Republican platform today as he was when he went to the Senate in nineteen eighty
0: five. He, he's had some uh pretty strong tweets in terms of uh skillful trolling over the last uh months. And I mean that I mean funny stuff and, and biting stuff. Um do you know where that comes from? Yeah, I mean I think that
1: McConnell uh for his uh know he's not like a, uh, uh, you know, on Twitter all the time and, and he doesn't use it the way the president does. But he is always watching, keenly aware of the national conversation. And I think he wants to communicate to people that uh, I'm watching and I'm on top of my game. I think you're probably referring to the tweet that he sent out after the West Virginia primary. That was the most
0: at, recent one. Yeah, yeah. Yeah.
1: Yes. And and that was a great moment because, A, uh, it really <laughs> I think it really showed. Just how fiercely competitive McConnell is uh b showed how close uh, of attention he pays to all the machinations of these center races and c it communicated to me that this guy's as sharp and as on top of his game as he ever has been uh and uh and so I like it when he engages in that kind of a back and forth because I think we're living in an era of politics that demands a little showmanship, and although he's not the world's greatest showman uh that's Donald Trump, I guess <laughs> but But he certainly, I think, recognizes that that's part of, you know, part of what you have to do to operate in politics these days. So I would expect to see more of that in the future.
0: Scott, thank you. Thanks for your time and and helping helping folks uh, understand what the GOP is today. Thank you, sir. That was my conversation with Scott Jennings. Twitter's right. What a polite guy. Want more from Scott? A reminder to sign up for my free newsletter at chrisreback.com. It is bonus insights from Scott on the question Is Bob Corker right? Are Republican senators afraid of Trump? Plus, sign up and you'll get a chance to win a copy of a recent guest's book. My thanks to Scott for the conversation and you for listening. I'm Chris Reback. I'll talk with you soon.